So to recap where we're standing. And the next couple of classes we're going to be going through are going to be going, simply speaking, going to be working with the parables of Yehuda Halevi uses to illustrate his points. But we've just been through the journey of the opening gambit, which was the dream of a king. We moved on to his journey in the investigation, looking for a yardstick, looking for truth, looking for a way that he should act in the world. It's a different format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I thought it would be easier for this. <laughs> when I, I will give an overview with the uh, uh, flow chart, but mm -hmm. the, the text, I thought this was probably easier. <laughs> He went through the, the, we went through the dream, he went through the nature of dialogue, he went through the, the, the philosopher, the philosopher laid down his worldview. The king reacted to it that you have a beautiful perspective, but you aren't helping me on my journey. My journey is to find out how I should act in the world. And Mr. Philosopher, you're not helping me. He then went through a Christian and he brought up issues with the Christian as well. He then went to a Muslim, a cleric, and he had issues with him as well. And finally, he arrives at the doorstep of a Jew, because when it comes down to it, both the Christian and the Muslim, who both have a way of acting in the world, they have a mission, they disagree with each other, but they both agree on one thing at least. It all seemed to have begun with the Jews. So he invites a rabbi, and then we're gonna see the opening of Yehud Alevi. Now this is the opening of Yehud Alevi is putting into the mouth of the rabbi, how is the rabbi going to present? How is the rabbi going to open up his description of what Judaism is? And I call this topic radical epistemology of the rabbi. And we're going to get into what that means and why that's significant. Because the rabbi now describes a way of looking at the world that I think is not only valuable 800 years ago, 900 years ago, I think is super valuable in terms of us growing our own Jewish philosophical, Jewish theological approach, how we approach Yadat. We spoke at the beginning about what is Jewish philosophy and its way of categorizing, understanding key Jewish ideas, putting them into a framework that we can relate to God in this world, in this life. And Rabbi Yehuda Levi is one of the earliest people to do this, but also in a strange way, one of the most modern. How does the rabbi open up? Who wants to read? Okay, so you, you will take the position of the rabbi, and then you will take the position of the king. All right, go for it. And if I interrupt you, it means that I want to just add something in there. At the very beginning? Yeah. Oh, then. He then invited a Jewish rabbi and asked him about his beliefs. We've got a narrator as well. Go for it. The rabbi replied, I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, who led the children of Israel to the signs and miracles who fed them in the desert and gave them the land. After having made them traverse the sea and the Jordan in a miraculous way, who sent Moses with his law? And sus subsequently thousands of prophets who confirmed his law by promises to the observant and threats to the disobedient. Our belief is compromised in the Torah, a very large domain. Before, beautiful. Before we carry on, what is seriously lacking with this opening? One God, God. God. Creation. Creation? For heaven's sake. No pun intended. You are a rabbi who's being presented to a king. Show me why your worldview is awesome. I believe in the Torah. What? I don't want that. I want, I, want, I want epic proportions here. I want to hear about the cosmos. I want to hear about Genesis. And there was light. I want to hear that sort of talk. And along comes a rabbi. 
and gives the like, in a, I mean this in a, in a crude set, like, gives a really from answer. <laughs> like really, where's the philosopher with his grand construct of the spheres and the active intellect, the Christian, God becoming flesh, the Muslim, the conquest, the beauty of the Quran. God gave us the Torah. What? Uh, yeah, yeah, you were slaves. Like what, 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 really? This is how you open? I had not intended to ask any Jew because I'm aware of their reduced condition and narrow-minded views of their misery left them nothing commendable. Now, shouldest thou, O Jew, not have said that thou believest in the creator of the world, its governor and guide, and in him who created and keeps thee in such attributes which serve as evidence for every believer, and for the sake of which, the sake of which we pursues justice in order to resemble the creator in his wisdom and justice. So the king asked, well, I had read it before, but the king asked that very question. Like, I, I want evidence. I want a discussion. I don't want to hear what you, like, your tire. Like, what, what, is, what is going on here? Why is the rabbi opening like this? So is that his reply? No, that, that's, the, that's the king's reply. I took away al-Khazari, which... Uh, oh, that was so what's the king saying? The king's yes. saying, I, I, I knew not to ask you. you. You Jews with your narrow-minded... What does he mean by your narrow-mindedness? You answer me about your God and your Torah. I don't want to hear about that. I want to hear about evidence. I want to hear why it's true. I'm looking for a yardstick, remember. The, the spiritual pursuit, the goal of the spiritually minded individual is a seeker. I'm looking for truth, capital T. I don't want to hear about your particular God right now, like Tyra and the, uh, nice, but not now. We're opening. I want to hear about the creator. I want to hear why your worldview is right. And you open like this. And the response by the, the rabbi, and in general, we're not going to be going through every single piece of text backwards and forwards. We're going to then move on to a new format of going through the next, the rest of the section. But this opening is so key. Go for it. That which thou dost express is religion based on speculation and system. The research of thought, but open to many doubts. Now ask the philosophers, and they will find that they do not agree on one action or one principle. Since some doctrines can be established by arguments which are only partially satisfactory and still much less capable of being proved. So what does the rabbi answer? The rabbi is answering, you went to a philosopher, even the Christians. Everything they were speaking about was speculative. The nature of philosophy is a speculative endeavor. It doesn't, especially in the area of what we would call metaphysics. The concept of creation is a metaphysical claim. It's not a claim about geometry. It's a claim about ultimate reality. That's what the word metaphysics means. Rabbi Huda Levi is putting something on the table which is really modern. The philosophical journey, according to Rabbi Huda Levi, won't get you ultimate truth. It will get you arguments. Argumentation will lead to insight, it will lead to interesting thoughts, but what is the point about, what do we constantly find amongst philosophers back in the 10th century, as well as today? Disagreement. Disagreement. A person can put down on the table, I have an argument for the existence of God, and I can show you a problem with that argument. I can show you six arguments for the existence of God, and I can show you six problems with those arguments. 
we don't look at the world like that even today. Back in the day, people thought they could, there are Yehuda ladies in the world where people were thinking they could prove things deductively. Rabbi Yehuda ladies opening and saying, not in the realm of metaphysics, not in the realm of the area that you're interested in. You want to know how to act. Philosophy will never give you that. The world and the speculation of the philosophers isn't a world that's going to be useful. I opened up with the God of my forefathers and the God who had a relation and the God that had a relationship with my ancestors. The rabbi immediately draws it into an encounter. Remember, just to draw us back to the original question, the angel was an encounter. It was a personal encounter with the king. The rabbi is taking us straight back to that. He's confronting the king in the area the king was questioning. He's not talking about speculative philosophy. He's talking about Judaism. And Judaism is primarily an encounter with us and God. A bang in history where God appeared to a people, appeared to Avram, appeared to the Jewish people in the desert, took the Jewish people out of the desert. Now, he's not foregoing philosophy. Remember, when we discussed the philosopher, he didn't dismantle the philosopher. He didn't say, ah, philosophy is shtuyot. He just said, you're not answering my problem. Rabbi Yehuda Levi is still sitting with the philosopher because next question will be is, well, that little description you gave there about God and your people, how do I know it's true? You have to resort to philosophy. Philosophy has a value. Philosophy will give you truth. It will allow you to argue for truth but it won't give you ultimate reality. It can't do that. And this approach, to, to, to elaborate on it, you'll have thinkers like of Sadia God, who was one of the Goyim, or Maimonides, the Rambam, who would disagree with the Rabbi Yehud Ali on this point. An epistemology, the word epistemology comes from the word episteme, which means knowledge. Ology is just the study of, the study of knowledge. How do we gain knowledge? How do we, what is considered knowledge? What's the difference between knowing something and a belief? This is the study of epistemology. How you come to know things is what your epistemology is. It's a bit of a, silly, uh, a, a long-winded word, but it's a useful word because we often don't talk about knowledge in this sort of way. What type of knowledge are we talking about? These are the sort of questions they would have in this sort of study. Someone like Rapsad Yagan would have different ways of gaining knowledge, either from sense experience, from logical deduction, or from reason. How those are all different is a different discussion. But when a person would open up a philosophical treatise, they would open up with their epistemological framework. How are you claiming to know things? Well, I've got logical reasoning. I've got empirical knowledge. A person may say, I have tradition. These are going to be what comes in line with how you know things in the world. The Jewish tradition might be a source of knowledge for people. But the difference between Rabbi Yehuda Halevi and these earlier and later, in this case, Jewish philosophers, they thought ultimate truth could be got to through philosophy. It was possible. You could come to the truth of Yadut, according to someone like the Rambam and Rabbi Yagon. You could come to the truth of God and Judaism through pure speculation. You don't need the Torah. The way the world is made, you don't need the Torah. In some way, you can reach those truths. In which case, why do we have the Torah? 
practically speaking, nobody's going to manage, or very few people will manage. Hence, for the peasants, and they were slightly elitist in that way, they didn't phrase it quite like that, but the Torah is basically there because you can't dedicate your life to it, because we have other things to do. Certain people are intellectually capable of doing it. Not everybody's a philosopher, so the Torah has to give it to us. So from the point of view of Rabbi, Rabbi Sadiagon and the Rambam, the Torah is almost like a, you could get there otherwise. The Torah is there to help you along. And Rabbi Yehuda Levi is saying, no, that's not true. You can't get, and this is the radical shift he's doing from that point of view, you can't philosophize about what God wants of you, because that's in the realm of speculation. You don't know if you're right. You're guessing. Obviously, it's not guessing. You bring argumentation. You bring reason. But there's always going to be an argument against your proposition. Why do I say this is very modern? Because working, if we bring into play a couple of other philosophers who are around, let's say, 1,500 years before Rabbi Yehud Halevi, you have a very famous philosopher called Plato. Plato thought, which is, they, they, they say he's like... Um, the bedrock of Western spirituality comes from Plato. The way of speaking about spiritual ideas comes from Plato. But Plato believed that through what he would call the dialectic, through discussing the to, the fro, the argumentation, have you heard of the Socratic method? Yeah. That's Plato. Through the discussion, eventually you will come. Yes, but, no, 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 he was doing, yeah. But we only know anything about Socrates because of Plato. Socrates didn't write anything down. He felt that if you wrote things down, this is going to be difficult for you. He felt if you wrote anything down, you uploaded it to your somewhere else and you weren't forced to remember it. Yeah, so did his students. Plato wrote a lot. Yeah. I feel like, from my understanding, though, there's like a mis equation of like your class of like knowing how like knowing God is true versus. So we're going to come to that in a second. We're going to come to that in a second, 100%. Because we're going to come to that. The reason why I'm bringing Plato in is because this is the framework people are working with. He felt through discussion, you could gain access to ultimate truth. But I'm saying like, so um, this rabbi is saying like, no, you can't, but you can. So, like, like, it's just, but were you saying the other rabbis were saying, like, I don't know. So I'll, I'll develop it out. I'll develop it out. This way of looking at the Aristotle or Plato in different ways through either deductive and in a different sense, inductive logic for Aristotle, you would come to truth. Rabbi Huda Levi is disagreeing with this. In the 1700s, there was a very famous philosopher called Immanuel Kant, who's known as the father of the enlightenment. He had a very similar, and to, to, to butcher uh, the critique and to butcher the approach of Kant, which I'm going to do now, but just purely to steal an idea that he developed, and, uh, and I'm really butchering it, and a Kantian uh, professor will have me shot. But one of the innovations Immanuel Kant did, I feel Rabbi Yehuda Levi is doing as well. What did Immanuel Kant develop in his philosophy? He said, when it comes to understanding metaphysics, you have no right to talk about it. Not because it's not nice, because your language doesn't work. You are interacting with the world of sense experience, in which case any concept you develop is based off this world or through the lens of your mind, which is constructing the world. Everything you're developing in your mind is in some way 
based off sense perception. Yes, there is reason. Yes, there is uh, um, concepts. But when it comes to talking about metaphysical matters, you cannot help but use the world that you're experiencing to develop them. You're in almost the way he put it, you're, you're fixed into, I'm not sure the best way of articulating this, but you, and I suppose a, a simpler way of putting it is that he, in a more complicated way, described our way of looking at the world as always being through certain lenses. We can't escape these lenses. You experience the world as it assumes to you, not as it necessarily truly is. You can only access reality, the phenomena world, but the ultimate reality is beyond you. You can only talk about what you experience. In which case, to cut a very long story short, to talk about metaphysical matters, like free will. Free will is a good example. Free will is not a physical description of the world, is it? Because by definition, when you say free will, you mean apart from your material experience. You mean, I'm going to act in a way that isn't determined by prior causes. That's free will. That makes no sense. How can you act apart from physical causes? How can you act apart from your reality? Where are you standing? Where are you going to do that? You're immersed in this reality. God. That's another concept. What do you mean by God? That which isn't part of this existence. That doesn't make sense. You only have this existence. You can't talk about that which is beyond this existence because you only have this existence to work with. Areas of metaphysics, he felt, certain things you just can't talk about, that we will never know the truth about them. You could postulate them, but you'll never know the truth about these concepts by the nature of our very being and interacting in the world. There's a certain structuring process that goes through our, that, that we experience when we look at the world, that we don't know is part of the world. So for example, not, not that we don't know is part of the world, that we have to look at the world through our sense perception. We can't escape our sense perception to see the world as it truly is. In a, in a, in a crude sense, a dog sees a different world than you do. A bee sees a different world than you do. A dog smells a different world than you do. Which is the true world? Hmm? So there's a, 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 a philosopher called Thomas Nagel wrote a book. What's it like to be a bat? Why did he choose a bat? Because a bat experiences the world in a radically different way than we do. The point Immanuel Kant was making was that when it comes to metaphysics, that is a limit to our ability to talk about it. And this is really similar to what Rabbi Yehuda Levi is doing here. Rabbi Yehuda Levi is saying, when it comes to metaphysical concepts, you can argue, but you're always in the world of speculation. You're always in the world of guesswork, even God. I can bring an argument for the existence of God. Demonstrate. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. Everything that exists has a cause. Is that true? No. Everything has a cause for its existence. Does the universe exist? Yes. Yes, the universe has a cause. Oh, there you go, there's God. Ah, then a person comes along and says, what about God? Does God exist? Yes. Does God have a cause? No. Then why can't I say the world doesn't have a cause either? No. So they, they develop the argument further. They say, okay, change the argument. That argument has changed the argument. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Ah, so thereby the universe has a cause. 
Okay, well, how do I know the universe began to exist? Big bang, excellent, a scientific argument to support the press. Do you see how it's changing now? It's no longer a simple deductive argument. It's, and by the way, when the, when the, ink, when the scholastic philosophers developed these arguments, they were quite elaborate, but they come down to the same problem. You can think of a counter to these arguments. They're not airtight. They're not certain. They might be convincing to some people, non-convincing to other people. Rabbi Huda Levi is saying, I'm talking in the realm of experience. We experienced God. God, not history evolved to become that. No, there was a snap, like an explosion in history. God encountering man and told us what to do. There's no speculation that can disassemble that. It either happened or it didn't happen. Nothing about describing the causes of nature can come to whether that happened or not. The claim that he's making is revelation is the only way to talk about religion in a meaningful sense. You can have your speculation till the cows come out. But when it comes to talking about how to act in a, that Kant wouldn't have liked this, I'm not saying they all agree with each other. I'm saying the modern point that Rabbi Yehuda Levi is making is that religion can get attacked from many different areas. Judaism stands and falls, not on whether evolution is a, uh, is a description of the world, not whether Copernicus model of the heliocentric model wins up. That, that's not the point. Other speculative systems, if they're basing themselves off philosophical ideas, will crumble and fall depending on the philosophical trends of the time. Rabbi Yehuda Levi is saying, revelation is unique. Now he'll try and argue that revelation is true. He'll try and bring an argument that revelation is true, meaning he's using reason. He later on in the book, he says, God forbid, I would say we shouldn't do something reasonable or that the Torah asks you to act against your reason. Reason is essential, but it isn't gonna get you to metaphysical truth. Only thing that will is revelation. If I can argue for revelation, if I can give you an argument that revelation took place, not only do you have now what to do, you also have your God. To bring this, ground this in, in, in another sense, it was a very famous argument for the existence of God called the teleological argument, which was basically known as the watchmaker argument, which was very simple. You walk along the desert, you find a watch on the floor. I'm butchering it as well for the sake of time. You see a watch on the floor. Would you ever think the watch came there by accident? No. Of course not, obviously not. Someone had to have made the watch. And then you come to the human eye, you come to a squirrel, you come to a rabbit. The complexity of the rabbit and the squirrel you think that came there by mistake? No. Of course not. Obviously not. Hence God. Obviously, that's a, a simplistic way of putting a very old and very convincing argument. What was a big problem for that argument? People always say, oh, there's a tiny, 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 tiny percent chance that I could, and the watch could have been. No. No, 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 no. It's a good, a good, good suggestion. But to, to um, they wouldn't have to necessarily go down that road and say there's a, perhaps a tiny possibility. They would say something else. Maybe your argument is bad. You're drawing an analogy between a watch and a squirrel. I've never seen a squirrel factory. I've seen a watch factory. So what gave you the right to draw the analogy between the squirrel and the watch? That is using, once again, an argument against that argument. You, you say you saw a watch in the middle of the road, in the, on the beach. I know, but the comparison is not The complete, correct. But when you're working with the a, uh, not emotional, you're working with the push of, yeah, watches are made by people because of its complexity. And then you're translating that onto a squirrel. But there's other things that go along with a watch that I know watches are made. I knew that already. 
If you would, if you would have given me the same story, I walk down the road and I see a rock. Would you think the rock came there by mistake? I'd be like, yeah, probably. No, but isn't the isn't the argument that like um, with natural forces, like the rock comes together, like not being like let's say the plane like just walked over you and not like you know, like it was made by like the earth moving around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's what they're saying. But it's still not about. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. No, no, that, that you're already moving. Perhaps we're already moving in history to um, the, the, the no, no, for sure. No, it's it's a good point. Let me maybe let, let me maybe phrase it this way. The next problem that came against this argument was evolution. As you said, quite correctly, the argument was, do you think this randomly happened? Like a bunch of springs came together? Of course not. So, so evolution would come and say, yeah, you might not think it happened like that intuitively, but guess what? That's what actually happened. Through natural selection, random mutation, we get watch, not watch, eyeball, squirrel. Now, the person can say, well, I don't like the theory of evolution. Each to their own, but it's still an argument that takes a hatchet to the classic design argument. Now, a person may not like evolution, and then what will the next stage be to try and dismantle evolution? No, I thought it was, I mean, okay, yeah, I guess there's always gonna have classification. No, no, so tell me, tell me, tell me. Like, not even dismantling evolution, like, yes, evolution, obviously. I believe in evolution, but I think that's what's happened in, like, um, to some extent, like, not to some extent, like, I'll say something that it wasn't there, but, like, like, even evolution, like, the percentages, I mean, I don't know, I guess it helps. I never looked at the percentages of this happening, but the percentages that, like, a big mass of, like, atoms can, like, form something so ridiculously complex, like, just coming together naturally, human beings can't create a human. Like, we're not able to do that, so how do you expect Something with no intelligence to do that. Uh, we create humans all the time. No, uh, you know, no, 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 no. Uh, by the way, 100%. But now we can already, you're, you're, you're dead right. And, but we can see how, we can see how the, how the area of speculating, what we're doing is we're speculating because the next position that a person will say is like, um, right, but that's no longer an argument. You're saying the grandeur of nature moves you. Okay, but that's not an argument anymore. Not that that's what you're saying, but that would be a thing like, I, I don't see how it would come, but if a person gave me a good enough explanation of the evolutionary process, it would say, that wasn't the end. There was no end in mind. It happened to be this way. And post facto, you're looking at it and being, oh, wow, it could have been something else. And you would have done the same thing then. Now, after stress, a person who's very into uh, intelligent design arguments would obviously do a far better job than I'm butchering it right now. And to and my point being, the point where Yehuda Halevi is making and why it is such a valuable idea in today's world, Revelation isn't something that can be, the way Rabbi Jonathan Sachs put it, was evolution, revelation was the only thing that remained untouched by the enlightenment. The attacks of the enlightenment were on philosophy. They were on the sciences, but not attacks on the sciences, using the sciences to attack religious structures. Revelation remained untouched. You can't argue against a super, Phenomena. You can't argue against how that could be possible. For sure, for sure. But that doesn't touch the. the, the you're, you're 100%. The Torah, the claim can be the Torah is written by men. It was made over a certain period of time and there were different authors. 100%. The claim of the Jewish people is that this happened at a certain point in time. There was a, a revelatory moment with the nation of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. That either happened or it didn't happen. Rabbi Yehuda Levi thinks it did happen, and he thinks he could argue for it. If he can present a good argument that such an event took place, he bypasses philosophy. He bypasses philosophical arguments for the existence of God, for what we're supposed to be doing in the world. Now, the argument, which will probably develop more next week, 
Some people like it, some people don't like it. It's got its pros, it's got its cons, and what you think the argument does very much comes into play with how strong you think it is. But that's his goal. And the reason why I'm saying it's so modern is because when people are confronted with the existence of God, we often have on the, the, the horizon, we have science. And science being the attack on people's understanding of God, because often what people do is they have ideas of why there must be a God, and then along comes science with a big scythe and starts cutting down these ideas. Slowly but surely cuts them away. And religion ends up being this concept hiding in the dark until science comes to enlighten us. The universe is so complicated, I don't know how it could have existed like this. Obviously, God. Along comes science, says, not anymore. I have a better explanation. And that would be that, that 100%. In which case, the religious person goes, no longer, no longer um, uh, uh, intelligent design in animals. I lost that battle. What about the fine-tuning of the universe? The universe seems very fine-tuned for human existence, for the existence of, of matter, for the existence of reality as we experience, so finely tuned. The constants, the gravitational constants, the, the, the nuclear strong force, the weak force, have to be so precise, but like magnitudes of precision. That was an accident? But you're changing the goalposts. Yeah, but you can still say that the evolution is intelligent design. A hundred percent. Evolution doesn't negate God either. Right. Uh, that, 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 very good point. The, the, the converse is true. When it comes to religion, uh, disproving metaphysical constructs, Kant would say, can't do that either. You can't bring me science to disprove metaphysics. You can't show me there's no free will because, you're, because we experience cause and effect in our reality because we're only dealing with our reality. Once again, parallel with Yehuda Levi, talking about metaphysics is going to be speculative. Which means if you're coming to me and saying, I want a mission, I want a purpose, I want to know how I should live my life in the ultimately truest sense of the word, philosophy ain't going to do that for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry, you had your hand up, sorry. Yeah, um, I just wanted to, on the honest, like, why isn't I so ridiculous? Because it was just so, like, infuriating. So, um, I, just, I, I don't, the idea that, like, because there are some holes in free revolution, it must be false. Like, yeah, because oh, we worked on the ancient ages. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I, I, it feels like it needs more to be complete. It's like, oh, look at the science now. Is it completely airtight? We know every day of the, of the, from Big and it's called the way it's often argued for is God of the gaps. You don't know something, eventually science will tell you the answer. And honestly, that has been religion since the ancient times. I don't know how thunder comes, Zeus. Judaism, Judaism, according to Rabbi Huda Halevi, in my modern language, bypasses that. He accepts science. He accepts philosophy for where it belongs. Science isn't there to teach you metaphysics. Science is there to teach us the natural world. Religion is the area of metaphysics. And he says the only way to talk about metaphysics in a, in a reasonable sense is to talk about revelation. Now, a person can say, the concept of revelation is off the table. Impossible. It sounds too fantastic. It sounds stupid. I'm a modern thinker. I don't believe in that garbage. Fair, fair. But recognize that you're making that claim off the front. 
Meaning, if you're negating the possibility of revelation, fair enough, but that's an approach. That's a philosophy. That is a approach you're taking to the world. Rabbi Huda Levi is asking us to be open to that possibility of revelation. Thereby, you have your argument. You embrace science. He's embracing philosophy here. He didn't destroy the philosopher. It's a very distinct difference between whoever was speaking to you in school and what Rabbi Huda Levi did. The philosopher opened up with his structure of reality. A perhaps not so informed um, religious thinker might have said to the philosopher, well, this argument, that argument, why you're wrong. Rabbi Huda Levi doesn't do that. He doesn't try and dismantle science, as some people sometimes unfortunately try and do. He says, fair, but we're talking apples and oranges here. You, you're not telling me what to do. You might be dead right about all your speculation. You might be right about all these philosophical deductions, but I want to know what to do. And that's not helping me. Rabbi Yehuda Levi's system can work alongside the philosophers. He'll use the concept of the philosophers. He'll disagree on the metaphysical claims. What was a metaphysical claim of the philosopher? God doesn't know your name. Really? God doesn't know your name. God doesn't care about you. That was the claim of the philosopher. That's a metaphysical claim about the nature of God. Rabbi Huda Levi would say, the whole active intellect thing, fine. But what are you telling me God doesn't care? That, let, move it into the scientific realm. Random mutation. That, that is a claim about the nature of randomness. Sorry? The claim of randomness. A religious thinker can say, guided. What is he doing there? He's incorporating it. He's incorporating evolution into his system. In which case, he's not disagreeing with the scientist. The scientist will say, no, evolution's atheistic by definition. That's a metaphysical claim, my friend. Rabbi Huda Levi is so, modern isn't a compliment in, in isolation, but his way of articulating Judaism near a thousand years ago and religion a thousand years ago, fits right in line with the best thinkers of our time, of having to be able to hold, not choose science or religion, and you see Rabbi Jonathan Sachs takes a very similar approach. Amazing The best thing is Rav Hirsch in a similar sense. Yeah. There will be times when philosophy seems to counter religion. And then we've got an interesting uh, debate happens. To touch upon those two, where do we see philosophy or the scientist disagree with religion? Creation. Judaism says creation, doesn't it? At least from a Behoda Levi standpoint. The philosophers were like, no, 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 there's no creation. Existence has always been. Now that is an argument. How does Rabbi Huda Levi do, deal with that? He's got his philosophy, which he is committed to. He's committed to reason, but he's got his religion that says creation. How's he gonna square that circle? So that, that's an interesting question and we're, we're gonna deal with it. But it, another example, God in the ultimate sense of the word, if you mean the ultimate being, which we do, what can God not have? A body, because bodies decay, because bodies have parts. What does your Bible clearly say about God? What's Rabbi Huda Levi going to do that? That's a move. Of course he's going to do that. He's going to say, we don't mean that. But why am I saying we don't mean that? Because I have both religious reasons and philosophy telling me that's impossible. Meaning he gives way to science. Not he concedes, 
he's saying science is also part of the world that God created. And if I see a contradiction between my understanding of the tire, not only religious concept, like if we look at the human being as having a soul and that's immaterial, it would be bizarre for me to think that God has a foot, but also the philosophical arguments against God being physical. And that causes him to reinterpret the Torah. He edits the simple understanding of the Torah. We've been brought up with this. It's so much part of our being. But he was the first one to phrase it quite like this. You had earlier people, obviously. But he was one of the first to phrase it in such a way that when we say God's hand, we don't think God has a hand. So, yeah, sorry, I was. No, I don't have any um, we can't understand infinity even in math like there's no logical way to like interpret it so like but in Judaism also like everything um like in the Torah is all like like representative and it's all based on our physical world because there's no way that in our limited physical sense we could interpret the like in, infinite which is like what God is so is that also corresponding with this like, that's the in a similar way in a similar way in a similar way it is all physical like I mean no Okay, I don't know. It's just like I've heard this idea a lot, and it's really corresponds to what I said, which is interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't there like the, the Quran, like every human being should like, be God? No. That's actually, by the way, an interesting point. The Ten Commandments. There's no belief in God in there. What, what is, there's like, the Bible doesn't ask you to believe in God, it takes it as a given. Yeah, sure. That, that's not to believe in God. Sorry? Yes. So that's a different. Excellent question. Excellent. Repeat the question. Perfect question. Perfect question. Perfect question. Guess who asked that question? The king is about to ask that very question. Yeah, big time. Great question. So, so to, re, so to recap our point, and just by the way, um, you mentioned your thesis was in evolution. So when it comes to when evolution came on the scene, it's also important to recognize what a radical shift that was to humanity. It, so, that, that was a massive explosion in the. It, the, in a similar way to Copernicus taking the shift from the Ptolemaic model where the earth was the center and then boom, you're no longer the center of reality. We were the crown of creation. It was all about humanity. Bang, that gets destroyed as well. Now, that, now because it made a radical shift in the consciousness of humanity, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It means that there's a teething period. Rav Shantanofal Hirsch, how he approaches evolution, he says if it becomes the consensus, then Judaism will adopt it. That, that idea of it becoming the consensus is that, well, that's the scientific way of looking at the world. I also want to say there are Jewish thinkers who look at evolution as being the worst enemy to religion, and they spend their time, probably some of the teachers that you, you, you had. I'm not here to criticize or argue because they're, they're quite, probably way smarter than I am, but that is an approach. Rabbi Yehuda Levi is not taking this approach. Rabbi Yehuda Levi is saying, putting all that to one side, Revelation is the way I understand the metaphysical, truest reality and how I'm supposed to act in the world. And that is what the Torah is. And the really modern 
or, or, or grounding nature of that claim is that in the post-enlightenment world that we live in today, revelation is untouched. Doesn't mean that um, skeptics believe in it, obviously not. They, they also think it's silly. They just ignore it. They don't let Correct, correct. Now, there are people who grapple with the argument that we're gonna present next week. Rabbi Huda Levi is gonna argue for this and we're gonna present it. It's not so developed by him, but I thought it'd be worth dedicating a class to, I suppose best way of putting it, the argument of Judaism. Because everything in Judaism lands and falls, rises and falls on this claim, which is why from early as, um, um, specifically Rav Hirsch and his thinkers around his time, they took the Torah as a given, as a fact that had to be content with. They based the reality of this fact off an argument, a historical argument. But once they felt the argument was good, at, not that they articulated it quite like this, but the argument for revelation, if it is good enough, I can treat it like a fact. Does that mean they know it happened? No, they weren't there. But it's a historical argument that gives a certain amount, to what extent we can discuss, of validation to it. And thereby you have your mission. You have your relationship with God. You have all those metaphysical concepts that philosophy tried to argue for, given as a reality. Yeah. without this epistemology, without this way of great gaining metaphysical knowledge, like take for example, free will. The Torah takes as a given that we are free, as we experienced in this week's parasha. The Torah takes as a given that we're free. If I have a reason to think the Torah is true, I have a reason to think free will is true. Now, how did we experience it? The, 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 not, not explicitly, but throughout the Torah, the assumption is people are acting in freedom and they are held responsible for where they act. And the Torah takes it as a given. And that is a metaphysical concept. A concept. It's not a, 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 if you just take a material world, free will is nonsensical. If you can argue for the truth of revelation, does Judaism have a unique claim in that area? How powerful is that argument? We may walk, people may walk away and say, I don't think it's particularly convincing. Ah, fair enough. It's not psychological, it's not psychology. It's a question of, uh, meaning I'm not a psychologist. We have to discuss how convinced we are by a certain argument. That's what Rabbi Yehuda Levi was trying to do. He was trying to bypass arguing speculative for these, these ideas, which is why he introduces the rabbi as God appeared to us, to our fathers. We have a relationship, an encounter with God. And the rabbi, the king's like, why open like that? He says, because that other way of opening actually doesn't help us. Metaphysical structures of reality and creation and spheres and intellects Maybe yes, maybe no. The only way to talk about those ideas meaningfully is with revelation. And can I argue for the truth of revelation? And that's the unification of two things. One, philosophy and revelation, because he's using philosophy to argue for it. He's using reason. That is a philosophical method. But he's not using the philosophy to get into the metaphysics. He's using the philosophy to get into the concept of revelation. 
And thereby you have, the way I phrase it is, you have the intellect meeting the emotional. Hashem connecting with us is, is, is not a purely cerebral concept, it's relational. That's, that's, that's what makes religion meaningful, is Hashem connected to us. He has a relationship with us. That's what revelation gives you as well. It doesn't just give you a treatise on truth. There is a meaningful part of that. So you have the emotion, you have the intellect, you have revelation, you have philosophy. And Rabbi Yehud is the one who unifies them. Yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is, I mean, this is the case of way afield, but there is a figure called Chaste Kreskas, who was a, a teacher of Yosef Albo, who was fairly convinced. It's complicated how he gets there, but free will is not such a big thing there, okay. which is really tricky. But That's yeah. Okay. And then also, um, the concept, so like based on this, the fact that we can't ever really experience the metaphysical thing, only experiencing the world through our physicality. Um, like, so I don't know, like, okay, so when someone's like, oh, this is inspiring, it feels holy, that's like pure emotion, but it could be impact, like, let's say there is a metaphysical world that impacts the chemicals in the brain that makes them feel that way, like, it's perfect. purely physical. Perfect, perfect. Beautifully put. Uh, uh, phrase it another way, just to, to parallel it with, uh, firstly, they, they take apart the brain, they do a neuro. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Neuroscan, uh, neuro they develop a structure of the brain, and they're able to pinpoint the very part of the brain that lights up when people feel religion. You could look at it through one lens and say, hmm, people feel religious because when I poke this part of the brain, it feels spiritual. Now, that, that discounts religion, shows religion is stupid. All feelings of spirituality are clearly silly. It's all this part of the brain. Mm. So the question is, well, does that negate the possibility that there actually is a metaphysical reality that also causes a spiritual feeling. No. No, it doesn't. I mean, a person could say, ah, now we found the part of the brain that gets impacted when spirituality becomes manifest in, in the person. That's philosophy once again. Both arguments work. Which one are you more convinced with? Perhaps depends on your presuppositions. But Rabbi Yehuda Levi is saying, well, wait, when I come in with revelation, I can argue the revelation is true that I am free to act as if it's very real because I have a basis for acting that's very real. And that basis is my, the, the, the revelation of the Jewish people, which we will develop further next week. And on that note, thank you all for listening. Thank you.